This is Impact, a look at the issues that matter in Nevada. I'm Carrie Kaufman. For the second time in a month, Nevada lawmakers met in special session to suss out some issues related to COVID-19. They made some tweaks to help the unemployment system move more smoothly. We'll see how that works. Then they addressed housing and voting, both of which are heavily impacted by the coronavirus. They also addressed criminal justice and mining taxes, which to the naked eye have less to do directly with COVID, but are important, timely matters. They also passed a bill guaranteeing corporate liability protections to almost every business in the state, except healthcare facilities, and guaranteeing worker protections to culinary workers, but pretty much no one else. The presentation of this bill by Governor Sisolak's representatives yielded some of the most astonishing statements of the session. We'll look into that in the next hour. bring April Corbin into this conversation. She has been watching the legislative special session unfold this week and writing about it for the Nevada Current. April spent last month's session in Carson City, but this time she and her editors at The Current decided to have her work remotely. She told me that being in Carson City was pretty restricting as only one reporter was allowed in the chamber and everybody else was watching on video in another hearing room. And lawmakers could rebuff a hallway conversation with a reporter by citing social distancing. Very convenient. April and I started our conversation with criminal justice. There were two different bills this session, one in the Assembly and one in the Senate. That is unusual. Usually special session bills originate in one chamber and are approved by the other. I asked April why two different bills were needed. There was... Assembly Bill 3, which dealt with a sort of hodgepodge of criminal justice issues, uh, most notably that bans the use of chokeholds. It also requires uh, police officers to intervene if they see another officer, including their supervisor, using excessive amounts of force. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it changed some of the language around of use of force. Um, So it's I think the wording was only um, a reasonable amount of force. Uh, And it also, you know, did a few things like making sure that people know that filming officers is legal. Um, uh, SB2 is uh, related to a 2019 bill, SB242, which deals with the officer, uh, police officer bill of rights. And that's related to some rules and laws that are in place about what happens when an officer is investigated for a misuse of force or some other infraction. Um, And advocates have been, since 2019, uh, pushing for full repeal. They never liked that bill. Um, And what they got in SB2 during this special session was not a full repeal. Mm -hmm. It was just tweakings uh, of what happens. So they were largely dissatisfied with it. District 1 Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe Moreno had an interesting take on this on both SB 242, the Police Bill of Rights law passed in 2019, and this tweak that you're talking about. Let's listen. I, too, in 2019 in this legislative body voted for SB 242. And I voted for it because I I saw it as a a workers' protection bill. 
However, as many of us have received emails and calls and people showing up at my house to tell me some of the negative consequences that were associated with the bill that we passed, we heard it from a number of people in their comments today. They did not comment in support of what we were doing. Their comments were against what we were doing because they said we didn't go far enough. And in some ways, I agree with them. But we're here today in a special session to address some things that are going on in our communities. And I've, I've gotten calls from people that I worked with because I spent 28 years of my life in correctional law enforcement. Loved my career, respected the people that came into my custody because I knew that they were someone's child, mother or father, and I loved the men and women that I worked with. They are my sisters and brothers to this day, and I would put my life on the line for many of them. But I also understand that there were consequences in SB 242 that we did not intend. And as a legislative body, we have to admit when we make a mistake or when we find out that something that we pass needs to be corrected. And I think what we did today is make a step in that right direction. But we will be back here in just a few months. And for those of you that say we didn't go far enough and say that you were not listened to, that we didn't hear black and brown people, well, I'm a black woman that worked in law enforcement and was proud of it. But I'm also the mother of black and brown children. And I know that as a community, as a nation, as a state, we can do better. So I encourage my colleagues to continue working with me and for the people that called in, our door's always been open and a number of us in this body, at this end of the building, worked with you, sat down with you and talked with you. And your feelings, your concerns, we heard you, we were addressing you and for my sisters and brothers in blue that I've also talked to. I encourage you to continue working with us as we come back in the next legislative session. So let's uh, move on to uh, unemployment. Uh, there were some tweaks that needed to be made, changes in the law to make it easier. Um, what does this bill actually do? What does it fix? Are people going to get their unemployment faster? That's a hard question. Um, Obviously, even before this pandemic, the unemployment system was clunky, it was bulky, it uses a years-old system that no one would use if they were trying to put into place something new now. And, and it's an incredibly bureaucratic process, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's paperwork and it's identification, and there's a lot of red tape that exists naturally in the unemployment system. Um, and like you said, uh, the unemployment bill, you know, increased flexibility for Dieter to make changes and to, um, you know, process those claims. And, uh, and those are good things. They've said that they need this to help them be more effective. But the matter of the fact is there's still thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the queue. Mm -hmm. And how much they'll be able to speed it up is a question um, that only time will tell. And, you know, the day or two after they passed the Dieter bill, Governor Sisolak had a press conference announcing a new uh, task force that was related to finding more resources for Dieter. So this is an issue that they are working on. And I think this unemployment bill helps move that in the right direction. OK, so let's uh, let's turn to housing. We're going to look in depth at housing next week. Um, but there are people who are run who are going to be running into uh-oh, I owe three months rent. 
and they're not going to be able to pay that three months rent because they haven't gotten their unemployment or because they still don't have a job. The jobs haven't come back yet. Uh, what did the legislature do in terms of housing for now? Yes, so uh, the, that bill, uh, SB, Senate Bill 1, um, essentially created a new program sort of that puts a stay on evictions, that instead of just automatically starting the process of evicting people, there's a basically a mediation period and in which landlords and tenants can, can find some solution so that you don't have that problem where a landlord says, well, you owe me four months of back rent and I wasn't able to evict you, but I'm going to do it now. So this, this program, we don't have specifics on exactly how it'll work yet, as far as I'm aware. Um, but the idea is to help facilitate um, some sort of mediation where they can find a happy medium between um, landlords who need to get paid and pay their own mortgages uh, and tenants who obviously are struggling. Anything else about this session that struck you um, as um, positive, negative, that this just sort of struck you as different from covering like the 2019 session? Um, I mean, obviously the process of a special session is just a lot quicker. You're not talking about 120 days, you're talking about a handful of days. You know, typically in a special, in a regular session, we would have several hearings. There would be several rounds of tweaks and conversations and public input. And we just didn't see that here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, could be a necessary evil, I'll say, of how fast these uh, issues needed to be addressed. Mm. But it's also can be disheartening when it feels like none of the public comment at the end of a hearing matters because the deal is already done. Um, and, and there are just a lot of questions we still have. I think we at the Nevada Current covered a lot of the the, the joint resolutions that passed. Mm-hmm. The legislature during the special session passed three constitutional amendment proposals related to changing mining tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the intent we know is to reconsider those three resolutions in the 2021 regular session and then pass one of them and then that will kick it to voters on the general election in 2022 but legislators despite having explained these three resolutions and their differences haven't explained why they're going this direction and there's a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty as to why these bills why these resolutions needed to happen now. I think there's been a level of explanation that has been missing. That's kind of my takeaway. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it wasn't, it's not a mining tax special session. It was, you know, it's a special session to, to tweak some of these issues that are COVID-19 related. Um, but because we have to pass things twice before they can go to voters, it's, it, it just sort of like speeds it up. Oh, we have a special session. So we're going to pass this. And then we'll hopefully pass one of them again in six months. That's my take on it. Yeah, that's that's basically it. We are going to bring in a lawyer and a doctor right now to talk about the liability and worker protection bill that April and I were talking about a little bit, SB4. The bill took up Senate debate till about 2 a.m. on Monday and the assembly debate till almost midnight on Wednesday. It's a really confusing bill. It gives workers protection, 
but not all workers. So some workers, like the Culinary Union, were totally for it, but others, like grocery store workers, were against it. It indemnifies most businesses from COVID-19 related lawsuits during the emergency declaration or future emergency declarations, but not all businesses. It specifically carves out health care as not being indemnified. It requires businesses to create COVID safety plans that rely on controlling health care standard, and I'm putting that on quotes right now. We'll talk about that. But not every county in the state has a health district uh, or has a controlling health care standard. And some people in rural areas on both nights of the hearings for the bill complained that in rural counties, the prevailing health guidelines are that masks aren't mandatory. Joining April and I right now is Hugh Barron from the National Employment Law Project in New York. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization into employment law. Also joining us in studio is Andy Eisen, who is a pediatrician, a medical educator, a former legislator, current chief academic officer at the Valley Health System, and full disclosure, he is my second cousin. Uh, thank you all for being here today. Thanks so much. Um, I'm going to suss this out. Uh, I'm going to start with you here, um, uh, uh, April. On Monday, when the Senate was hearing the bill, the big issue was the inclusion of hospitals and other medical facilities and schools. And they were opposite issues. Hospitals actually, this is why the bill was confusing to me. Hospitals actually wanted to have the liability protections applied to them. This is Section 25 of the bill. Um, and teachers' unions didn't want schools to have liability protections applied to them. Ultimately, the teachers' unions got what they wanted. Healthcare did not get what they wanted, but they got the same thing. Does that make sense to you, April? I mean, I think so. Um, <laughs> the school districts wanted to be included in the bill. The, the, uh, the employees who work for the district, the, the teachers' unions, they did not want their employer to be included in that. Right. So I think it does make sense because they're obviously looking at that from a very different perspective. <laughs> the, the school districts don't want to get sued, but the teachers want to, they want that fear of being sued there so that, that their employers take the proper precautions and keep them safe. Because a lot of teachers uh, feel that they don't have the resources to be able to go back in the classroom. Right. And a lot of teachers also in Clark County feel like they are uh, bullied, like there's retaliation. Uh, so they didn't want to necessarily give, I, I think, CCSD even more ammunition to do that or CCSD principals, some of them. Uh, but Hugh, teachers unions, unions wanted this. Uh, the culinary union wanted this. But will this necessarily protect workers well i think it's important to distinguish between the parts of the bill that people wanted and the parts that were added to it so while sb4 contains new health and safety protections for gaming and hotel workers it does not extend similar protections to other agents industries mm -hmm. and and so Ultimately, this bill was used um, a very good thing. These new health and safety protections for gaming and hotel workers. Um, the bill was used to move through 
sweeping legal immunity for for employers to get their workers and customers sick with COVID-19. And what that does is it lets employers off the hook and it prevents workers and consumers from holding them accountable if they get sick with COVID-19. So if, uh, if a customer comes to Las Vegas, checks into some hotel, gets sick with COVID-19, they have no recourse. Is that what, that's what you're saying? Not exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, effectively, yes, because what this bill does is it sets the standard for what, for what, for whether someone can hold one of those casinos accountable so high that no one will ever even bring the claim. Hmm. Andy, I want to bring you in here. I, I know that teachers wanted, didn't, did not want the school districts to be indemnified, and the school districts wanted to be indemnified. Hospitals wanted to be indemnified. What about the people who work in hospitals? Did they also, are they happy with this bill now? No, there's, there's still a great deal of concern uh, amongst hospital workers, amongst physicians, uh, about the way this bill stands now. Because I think what's important to understand is that the limited indemnification that comes into play in this bill is tied to the employer or whatever entity. It's not just an employer that we're talking about here, and that's specifically the issue with hospitals. It's not employees that we're talking about, it's, and it's not even patients. Mm-hmm. It's other folks who come into the hospital. It's that, that if that entity is complying with the guidelines that are intended to reduce the risk of transmission of COVID-19, that's when this limitation of liability would come into play. However, if they are either grossly negligent or they are not meeting those, uh, those guidelines, then the, the, the uh, indemnification simply doesn't apply in, mm-hmm. to any business. Mm-hmm. So if a business is not enforcing uh, the, uh, the directive for mask wearing, for example, then that business does not, uh, it, it doesn't receive the protections of the bill. A hospital is a very different kind of environment. And the first thing to recognize is that hospitals are obviously the epicenter. Um, this is where sick people <laughs> it's a go. Pandemic. Yes. Yeah, this is where sick people go. So there's already a concentration of folks who are more likely to spread uh, this infection. Hospitals have been absolutely on the forefront, the most aggressive about efforts to control the spread of disease in terms of isolating patients, uh, in terms of of screening uh, our own employees, our own medical staff, and also limiting visitation uh, as much as we can in an effort to reduce the risk of transmission. But I think there are a couple of things that we need to bear in mind here. One of them is that, that, that hospitals, unlike other businesses, cannot simply kick people out if those people refuse to comply with the guidelines. Mm -hmm. So if someone walks into uh, a a restaurant or a grocery store or a casino and refuses to wear a mask, that business has every right to remove that person from the premises and exclude them. If someone shows up at a hospital emergency department, uh, which by definition is a declaration that they have an emergency medical condition, then the hospital is bound by federal law, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, is bound by law not to dismiss that person from from the building until they have been evaluated and stabilized. And if that person refuses to stay put, refuses to wear a mask, is coughing all over the emergency department, that that hospital still has to take the time 
to do the evaluation and make sure that that patient is stable. So they have that additional risk. And the concern here, again, it's not about uh, the the patients. The governor's prior declaration uh, provides some protection there, mm-hmm. but it's about other people who come along with patients. It's about a a, a second parent when mm-hmm. a child is born. It's about a family member who wants to who wants to be at the bedside uh, of uh, of a loved one who's dying. And the concern is the risk that, that, that is then presented to the hospital of permitting those people in the building because they uh, might be exposed and then might turn around and file suit against the hospital puts the hospitals in a position where they are at risk from letting them in the door. And uh, the point was made, I believe it was by Assemblywoman Hansen last night, that if someone comes into town and stops into a hospital and then goes to a casino and and contracts COVID at the casino, the casino is indemnified, but the hospital is not, even if the hospital is complying. And that's the real issue, that if the the idea is to motivate an entity to follow the guidelines, removing them from this bill makes no sense because the Again, the the limited immunity only applies if they're following the guidelines. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying to all the businesses that are included is if you follow the guidelines, then then you have an opportunity to have this protection. You are incentivizing them to do the right thing. You're not penalizing them, by the way, if they don't. They mm-hmm. just don't get that added protection. If you exclude an entity from the bill, as was the case with hospitals, and not just hospitals, hospitals, freestanding emergency departments, nursing homes, and other healthcare Mental facilities. Mental health facilities. What you're saying to them is, it doesn't matter if you do the right thing or not, you still carry the same liability. And and that just, it simply doesn't make any sense. Uh, again, I don't think that hospitals and nursing homes and such are going to work less hard right. to reduce the risk of transmission. Like, we don't want to see this disease uh, continue to be out of hand. We want to get things under control. Uh, but it's it, it just doesn't it doesn't follow any logic to exclude those facilities from this bill. So, April, Andy just said something that I want to follow up on. There are penalties if you don't follow guidelines, isn't there? Didn't we give um, uh, the the executive branch, I can't remember which part, uh, the ability to shut down businesses? I think it's the Secretary of State. They can shut down businesses. Yes? No? Yeah, I mean, there are several levels of of retaliation, that's not the right word, of punishment for businesses who are not complying. Um, there are them at the municipal levels and business license level. Mm. And then, like you just mentioned, at the executive level, at the state level, they've sort of increased protections on that. And enforcement is, you know, higher and they've made a real push for that. So there are, um, there are those in place, but obviously there are a lot of employers out there. There's a lot of businesses out there and, you know, whether or not they can cover everybody and how many people are are falling through the cracks is is another story that it's probably up for debate. That is right. That is true. We don't have enough inspectors for for regular life, much less COVID life. Um, I want to get back to you, Andy. Kevin Powers, who is kind of my hero, to be perfectly honest. I think I have a crush on Kevin Powers. Um, he said that he is the uh, lawyer for the uh, for the legislature, essentially. He said that the bill will cover tort liability, but not premise liability. Again, if we're talking about patients um, and and uh, and 
medical malpractice, professional uh, you know liability, that has been covered. Mm-hmm. It's talk. It's talking about the other people who come in the building. It's it's vendors. It's uh, it's visitors and family members. You know, I'm a pediatrician. Uh, one of the things that I'm not clear about is if you know a parent comes in with a sick child, that parent is not our patient. If that parent were to contract COVID. In the hospital, even if the hospital is doing everything it's supposed to do, it appears to me under the language of this bill that that the hospital would still face liability for that that parent contracting COVID, even though it was entirely out of the hospital's control. They did absolutely right. nothing wrong. They're enforcing the the guidelines. They're taking every precaution, um, and yet this this still can happen. Again, that seems like an odd standard to set. When other businesses in the state, including non-essential businesses, don't wouldn't face that liability. So, April, I'm one of the things that I've wondered since watching um, the assembly session uh, is is why. I mean, it seemed pretty clear to me that there were uh, there were a lot of uh, assembly people who were saying, "Can we just take Section 25 out? Can't we just you know take this hospital?" Uh, carve out out. And, um, and Kevin Powers said, yes, you can do that. Um, but, but there wasn't really a good explanation that I could tell as to why they carved it out in the first place. Did you figure anything out? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Gibson told uh, the Senate during their hearing when they pressed him, I think it was the third time, you know, why did why are healthcare companies uh, excluded? Why? Why? And, and he sort of danced around it the first two times. And on the third time, uh, he you know, admitted, he said that the bill is a negotiated deal. It was between some of the most important players of Nevada's economy. And so, he didn't name any names, but anybody here could guess who those right. um, important players are. Um, we know that gaming had concerns and that the culinary union had concerns and both of them made it into this bill in a very uh concrete obvious way frankly are exceptionally concerned over section 25 in fact uh that that's a killer for me just you know the idea that we are going to deny these protections to the medical community uh, i I realize you kind of danced around it but there's absolutely nothing in this bill If, in fact, we were trying to ensure that the medical community also had the same liability protections as all these other types of businesses, we should just simply take out 25 because, according to you, they are already covered in some respect through some governor's something or other. But uh, it's obvious to me that 25 is in there for a reason, and it seems to me that that reason is bad. There is no good reason that our medical community should be subject to possible liability issues here when every other business that we can come up with, it seems like, is being protected. And they are definitely singled out in Section 25. Mr. Gibson, just a question. Is it possible to have that amended out? Because if they're already covered, why is 25 in there at all? Uh, <clears throat> Madam Chair, I'm through to Senator Hansen. Uh, Senator Hansen, what I would say is that the way this bill came about is it was a negotiation among some of the most important um, members of the Nevada economy. They struck this language and they decided that based on you know, the various weights and balances that are out there, that this, these, these elements should be included in here in this way. 
Um, and what I would say is that based on that deal, um, that's what this is where we ended up. Um, I think it would it would it would it would there's the potential that this deal falls apart if we start amending out certain provisions. They're there for reasons that aren't may not be obvious. Um, some are messaging related, some are optical related, some are substantive. There are various reasons why. I got it, but really in, in layman's terms, what you just told me, frankly, is that these guys are the sacrificial lambs so that other guys can get the protection, and that is just unacceptable. We cannot have our entire medical community being subject to, to uh, uh, lawsuits uh, while we give exemptions to everybody else. So I'm sorry, Madam Chair, that, that section 25 and that answer, frankly, just laid it out for me. We just had negotiations between a bunch of big hot shots and these guys were the ones that were going to throw uh, uh, as red meat to the trial lawyers. Sorry. But other businesses, we don't know who was at the table. We don't know who was in the room, so to say. We don't. And like you said, um, Assemblyman Levitt pressed him on it, and he said many entities. He said, I don't have a list. So, um, Mr. Gibson, and I find... I, I struggled to call you Mr. Gibson because I've been calling you by your first name since we were 12 years old, but you didn't really answer my question. Um, you, I, I get the importance of, of or, or the perceived importance of what you're doing, um, but you did state that you talked to specific people, and I was just curious to who those specific people were, or entities, or organizations, or, or stakeholders, or what, whatever, what have you. Assemblyman uh, Levitt, Bert Gibson here, for the record. There were, an, a, there were myriad interests that were involved in, in the negotiation of this bill uh, from the travel and tourism industry primarily, but there were a number of different interests. So you I don't have a list. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you can't recall who those, those people were or those entities were. Um, thank you. Thank you for, for attempting to answer my question. Andy, were you involved? Uh, actually, the Nevada Hospital Association made a very clear statement on Twitter that uh, that their members were not involved. And the other thing I think is really important was in terms of that comment that that, uh, that Mr. Gibson made about uh, major, you know, industries is that healthcare is a major <laughs> industry. Um, you know, the the the, uh, the Valley Health System where where I work is the largest non gaming private employer in the state. Uh, HCA, which owns three hospitals uh, in Southern Nevada, is also a major employer. Dignity owns three hospitals in Southern Nevada. Renown is a major employer in Washoe County. I mean, these are large economic engines as well. Uh, they, you know, they're not on the scale, obviously, of the gaming industry, but they are still large industries. And it's just not clear to me why, for one, that perspective was not brought to the table to begin with. And moreover, why that industry specifically was carved out and not even given the same level of protection as, you know, your local, you know, restaurant, grocery store, right. bookstore. I think we keep talking about immunity like it's a good thing for <gasps> workers, consumers, and patients. Here in New York, the governor and the legislature gave sweeping immunity to nursing homes at the very beginning of this pandemic. And as a result, 6,200 people died in New York's nursing homes in one of the most unbelievable displays of negligence that we have seen as a country during this pandemic. Do you think it's and as I, a result? Or do you think that nursing homes would have, that 6,200 people would have died anyway 
because of previous negligence from nursing homes? Well, I think it's a combination of negligence, right? There's existing negligence and understaffing and problems that were there before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But then those were exacerbated by this broad grant of immunity because it sent a green light to the nursing homes that they didn't actually have to do anything to protect patients, to protect their workers. And they would wanna, be absolutely immune. And you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, and, and I agree that a blanket immunity is a bad idea because there is then no incentive for the, the those businesses, those entities to do the right thing. And that's not what was in this bill. What's in this bill is, a, is an immunity that is predicated on the business doing the right thing, on, the, on, on following the guidelines, doing what they have been advised to do to reduce the risk of transmission. And by having the, this immunity, this limited immunity, predicated on that action, it then is an incentive for the entities to do the right thing. The bill says that an employer is immune if it's in substantial compliance with guidelines and standards. So what does that mean? It means good faith efforts. That basically means, did you try? And the problem is that right now, there is no mandatory federal guidance that requires employers to do anything to protect workers. It is all full of weasel words, like ensure social distancing, if possible, give masks and PPE and put up barriers between people, if feasible. Hmm. None of it is mandatory or binding. In Nevada, the only mandatory requirements for most businesses, other than now casinos and hotels, are mask wearing requirement and not having gatherings of more than 50 people. Okay, hang on a second, though, because we are coming back to this controlling health care standard. And there were a lot of questions about that from both chambers. Um, many, many legislators ask what the standard was. I think you talked about it a little bit on, on Twitter. Uh, they got many different answers. Uh, and the main answer seemed to me to be whichever is strongest in the county and municipality. The way I read the legislation is the business must operate under whatever is the strictest standards that's applicable at that time. So if the local standards are more stringent or stricter than the federal standards at the time of the exposure by the plaintiff, then those are the stricter standards that the entity needs to be operating under. Are you reading something different on that, Hugh? That is what the administration said mm-hmm. during, uh, during the hearings, but that is not how the bill is written. The bill, it gives options, right? It says you can choose between the controlling health standards, which can include voluntary guidance, right? And guidance, when we hear that word, it sounds directive, but the way that all of the CDC and OSHA guidance is written is to be very permissive and not actually mandate or require anything. Hmm. And so what substantial compliance with that guidance means is you can do nothing at all and be in substantial compliance. And that's what Mitch McConnell wants at the federal level, and Senate Republicans and Donald Trump want at the federal level. And it's what has now been enacted 
in Nevada. So, April, um, one of the things that, that I found most astonishing from, uh, from the assembly hearing was when uh, the, the person uh, from Washoe County Health District called in in opposition to the bill because uh, they were not consulted at all. And the health districts are the ones that are supposed to be uh, putting out this, this controlling health care standard and overseeing uh, that everybody is compliant. Uh, Megan Messerly from uh, The Independent also tweeted that the Southern Nevada Health, health District has not, was not included in this bill. Uh, and they're all worried that there's, this is an unfunded mandate. There's some money that's given to the health districts, but not enough money. Um, and they're, they don't know where they're going to get the staffing. Right now, they're dealing with, with all this COVID stuff to, to actually make sure that businesses are compliant. Well, what, are you, what are you hearing about that? Yeah, it's very problematic that the, the health districts have not been involved and that they are concerned about it. There hasn't been a whole flow of information um, from the lawmakers and from the people who have crafted this bill, uh, which has made it very hard in terms of reporting its potential impact and the interpretations of it. Uh, Culinary supported this bill because of Adolfo uh, Fernandez, a Caesars employee who died of COVID-19 after going to work after the pandemic started. Um, Caesars, this is you, you tweeted something on Wednesday about what happened to his um, his supervisor. I mean, Caesars had a safety plan. So how does this law protect future Adolfos? You know, I, I wish I had the, the great answer <laughs> to that. Um, you know, I, I feel like I haven't contributed a whole lot to this conversation just <laughs> because okay. there is a whole lot of uh, nothing that we know of. When and, it comes and, to this. and you know what? We don't know is a, a really important answer in yeah. some cases because that because that's really the crux of this story. We don't know. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, you know, one of my big takeaways from this particular bill and what we know about it and what we don't know was actually something that um, Senator Ben Kiefer said during the Senate hearing. He uh, voted for the bill despite having reservations about hospitals being included. And he sort of acknowledged that deal-making process that, you know, happened behind closed doors that he wasn't a party to, um, that we know certain parties weren't um, a part of. And he said, I don't know how this deal works out for them. Uh, they know that industry better than us. And I think if you looked at these protections that are offered in here and know that the gaming industry was involved and they want limited liability and the culinary industry was involved and they want worker protections, both of those parties got what they were aiming for in some way, shape, or form. There were tweaks that were made to the Adolfo Fernandez wording if you looked at their original proposal versus what was actually passed. There was clearly back and forth there, and those parties left that negotiation happy. I think the problem became when we expanded the liability question to basically every business except for healthcare companies mm-hmm. and education companies. And when we didn't balance those out with worker protections for those other industries. So there were a lot of people who said these were 
separate bills, that there were several bills rolled into one yeah. and that these issues should have been separated. Yeah. And the issue is they threw a lot of stuff in here and it's very messy. And all we'll know is just sit back and wait and see how this pans out because culinary union knows what they're doing in terms of negotiating these bills and they are a powerhouse in terms of the the capacity they have to keep their members in the forefront um so i'm not so worried about them and how it'll play out i mean obviously i'm still worried because they're in a very high risk situation i think but in general they have a lot better protections than um, the everyday essential workers who are going to grocery stores or teaching our students yeah. or in our daycares and all of those things. And one thing I've been disappointed with in all of this is that we're not talking more about those worker protections. One of the things I really liked and a lot of people really love about the worker protection part of this bill is that um, it's in there that if you are exposed to COVID-19, you can get tested and your test needs to be free Mm -hmm. and you need to have paid time off while you wait for results. Mm -hmm. What an amazing thing that is for workers in the hospitality industry to have, but that doesn't exist at most of the employers in the state. We've heard that over and over again, and it's unfortunate that that part of it, I think, has been lost in the conversation. April Corbin from the Nevada Current uh, sums it up. And uh, thank you for being with us, April. Thanks also to Hugh Barron from the National Employment Law Project in New York and to Andy Eisen, who is a pediatrician and currently the chief academic officer for the Valley Health System. He also is a former Assemblyman, you were a Sioux served in 2013, if I'm remembering correctly. Thank you all for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Is this even a relevant lawsuit? Allie, it's great to be here with you. And I think this is exactly the same sort of strategy that we've seen here in Nevada and nationally. And it's an effort to frankly suppress the vote. Tonight, the Nevada governor signed that bill into law. And joining us now is Nevada State Senator Pat Spearman. Senator Spearman, thank you so much for making some time to talk to us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. That was a little bit of some national coverage Nevada got this week after passing AB4, which authorizes the state to mail ballots to all current registered voters. Trump doesn't like mail-in voting. He says it's fraudulent, but it has been the norm in states such as Colorado and Oregon for years. And Nevada's recent primary, and in Nevada's recent primary, 98% of the ballots turned in were by mail, as you just heard Senate Majority Leader Nicole Canazero tell MSNBC's Ali Belchi. As you just heard Senate Majority Leader Nicole Canazero tell MSNBC's Ali Belchi. Trump did sue Nevada, but does he have a case? And when will we know? Here to talk through the lawsuit that the Trump team has filed is Daniel. Here to talk through that lawsuit is Daniel Stewart, partner at Hutchison and Stesson, practicing election law. He was also the general counsel for Governor Brian Sandoval. Daniel, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
So um, we're going to talk about AB4, uh, the election bill, this newly signed uh, law that President Trump is now suing over. Uh, Trump doesn't like mail-in voting. He says it's fraudulent, um, but it has been the norm in states like Colorado and Oregon for a few years now. And Nevada's recent primary uh, had 98 percent uh, turnout in terms of ballots turned in um, by mail. And we had the highest primary turnout that we've had in a long time. So is Let's just talk about mail-in voting in general. Is this a fraudulent system, or is it is it open to fraud? It is not a fraudulent system on its face, not at all. Uh, and various forms of mail voting uh, have been in existence for, you know, almost since the Civil War, hmm. during the Civil War. Um, there have been, uh, there's different forms in terms of, like, absentee ballots. There are some states that are all mail. There's states like Nevada is going to with AB4, which has all the traditional voting methods with mail on top. Uh, it is not a fraudulent system on its face. Uh, I, you know, I think I'd be remiss to say, and most people in this field would say, every, every time you add a new opportunity to vote, new uh, open new ground, potentially always open new ground to, uh, to people that may want to mess around with the elections. Mm-hmm. But, but so far, um, what we've seen is minimal. Uh, and I've seen nothing uh, to say that, that we can expect that there'll be anything fraudulent about the upcoming general election. So walk us through this lawsuit that the Trump administration has filed. Okay. Well, first and foremost, they, uh, the Trump administration did a very good job with the, the lawyer they hired. I, I mean, I know his praises will be sung by a lot of people, but Don Campbell and his team, uh, this is not a fly-by-night shop. It's a good good, good lawyer, uh, great uh, Nevada pedigree, been around for a long time. And they've put together about as good a complaint as you can put together on this bill. Uh, I still don't think it has much of a chance of winning, at least um, in getting the whole law struck down, which is at the end of the lawsuit, that's what they ask for. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way, to, the way to look at this lawsuit, I think, I, in my mind, I've kind of put it in three categories. There's kind of the the intro that talks about a little bit about your first question is that, you know, mail voting itself is problematic. There's there's lots of issues and um, we should be worried about it. Uh, then the middle is, is there specific claims that are on very, very detailed portions of the law. There's really four specific claims they allege that need fixing or they allege that they need fixing. And then the final conclusion is you need to stop the whole law. Um, and, and so that's it. That's the, the lawsuit in a, in a broad nutshell. There's everything can be handled kind of in that middle ground. Either, either they can make minor fixes to law, no fixes to law. But, uh, but that, that's the lawsuit. What are, what are the All fixes right? they want? And, and where does it jump from having these four fixes to just throwing the whole thing out? So there's, there's four main uh, allegations in, in law. Um, and, and the, the basis for it is uh, that it's a violation of federal election law and the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. So that's the basis for trying to get it struck down. But the, but the four claims, uh, I'll start with the easiest one to kind of dispense with or at least discuss. The, the one of their claims is that there's this lack of proportionality or, or that there's unfairness built in the law because um, 
counties are, are required to have a floor on the number of in-person voting sites. Mm-hmm. And kind of the way they did their math, the floor for Clark County uh, is probably higher per capita than the floor with some of the other counties. Uh, but that's just it. It's a floor. The, the, the counties have always had control over setting more sites if they wanted to, setting hours, setting locations, setting any of that. And I anticipate that if the counties think that they need more more sites, more places to vote, they'll do that. So that that's kind of the first, the most unlikely claim to, to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is one that's gotten a lot of the attention in the press, or at least kind of what's been focused on. But I, I think it's because there's a little bit of misunderstanding about about what's going on. So there's a safe harbor rule that currently exists in law that if you mail in an absentee ballot, uh, and let's say you mail it in right around Election Day or even Election Day, uh, because you can mail in as long as it's postmarked on Election Day. You mail it in, and by the time it arrives at the election office, um, the postmark has gotten wet, smudged, something where it can't be read. Uh, if that's still received within three days of election day, they'll just assume that it, they presume that it was postmarked on election day or before, so they'll be counted. Now, the reason that that has caused some consternation nationally and so forth is there's this fear that a lot of the ballots won't be postmarked at all, mm. based upon their postage uh, style. And so the idea is that you could have, you know, President or President Trump or Vice President Biden could wake up on Election Day and go, oh, my gosh, I'm down, you know, 6,000 votes. Let me go find 6,000 votes, put them in the mail <laughs> uh, the next day or so wake up the day after Election Day. They, they, they put them in the mail. They'll arrive because three days is a long time for mail to get, you know, from Vegas to Vegas. Like uh-huh. you put it in your mailbox here to likely get to the Clark County in before Clark County elections before three days. They'll show up, there'll be no postmarks, and they'll be forced to count them. Uh, the problem with that is that three-day exception that's built presumes, it, it mandates that there actually be a postmark. It only, ca- it only uh, um, uh, applies to uh, mail that has a postmark that can't be read. Uh-huh. So anything that comes in without a postmark is, is automatic, after Election Day, is automatically not counted. None of that's counted. Um, uh, Wayne Thorley even said that, deputy director of uh, elections with Secretary Sagasti. Um, and there'll be, there's no dispute that if it has no postmark and it's received after Election Day, it will not be counted. If it has a postmark that's illegible and it's received in those three days, uh, then it will be counted. Uh, and that's an extremely low number of ballots anyway. Right. So this notion that you can somehow tinker with the elections after Election Day is just, it's just not. Or not. There, there will be a postmark. Almost all of this mail will be postmarked. Mm-hmm. There will be a postmark, and it and it's only in the cases when that postmark can't be read that there's any uh, that that three day rule even comes in. And you can't just uh, get a bunch of mail in ballots anyway. And yeah. uh, I mean, you have to sign the mail in ballot when you put it in the envelope, and your signature has to be matched. So there's Correct. you so can't. Yeah, it would have to meet all those same other requirements. You'd have to go out and find 5,000 people or 6,000 people <laughs> that didn't hadn't voted that still had their ballots and get them to fill them out in the way you wanted them, have them sign them, drop them in the mail, and hope that all of them, none of them are postmarked. 
and that they arrive in three days. That would that would be the uh, that, that 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 would be the plan. The problem is 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 none of them being postmarked would mean none of them would be counted. Okay. Um, okay. So that's number two. So let's let's that's go number to number two. Okay. And those are the two that have gotten the most, I would say, attention. Mm-hmm. The, the other two claims are a little more interesting. Uh, and and oh, and one thing to keep in mind too is what I said is Nevada's always had what we call kind of a general severance rule that courts can strike little pieces of the law without having to throw out the whole law. So mm. if the court finds that one of these things is a little problematic, they can just stop that and let the rest of the law move forward. Um, so keep that in mind as we're talking about these, these, these individual claims. Uh, number three is uh, an interesting one because it actually brings in the Bush v. Core decision that despite the Supreme Court's effort in 2000 to, to, to assign that decision with no precedential value, um, actually has precedential value, at least on equal protection grounds. And, I, I, you know, I don't, 20 years, it seems like yesterday that we had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but, you know, one of the main issues in Bush v. Gore was that you had, each of these counties had different standards for county. And it was, and, and so equal protection was violated because, you know, Democratic counties were counting them one way, Republican counties were counting them other ways. And it's just, you couldn't have, or weren't even doing the recount at all. So you had this essentially equal protection argument built into how individual local jurisdictions. Well, in AB4, there's a provision that uh, tells the local counties that they've, uh, you know, they can decide to set a standard for electronic, um, how they're going to count by electronic means. Mm -hmm. So in theory, if each of the individual counties come up with a different decision, you could, in that case, have, uh, like a Bush v. Gore, different standards. The reality is, is that they're all going to use the standards that they've always used. Right. Um, and it, this is one where court could say, okay, fine. I'm just going to require that they all use this standard. And, you know, that's a very easy fix at that point. But, but that to me is that the most interesting of the claims in terms of broader, but that, but the remedy on that is simply that the court says, okay, here's here's the standard. You got to use this machine to count it, right? But it's not grounds to strike the law, the law down itself. Okay. Um, lastly, is a more, uh, I, I just don't know how common this would be, um, and that's that. I guess there's instances when a single ballot will come in, or a single envelope will come in, and it contains multiple ballots. Hmm. And the problem is, is that the signature verification is only on the envelope. Right. So, so in theory, you, you you would you would only be verifying one of the votes. Now, in practice, when that happens now, both votes are rejected, or three votes, or however many come into the the envelope, they're rejected. I anticipate that that's how the standard's going to be going forward. Still, but Amy before did have a little provision in it that said. If that happens and the individuals decide, the election officials decide that the majority of them or, or they take a vote, decide that the, um, they're actually multiple voters, right, that, that, that this isn't the same voter voting twice, this is multiple voters, they could make a decision to count those. So, again, that would be an easy fix for a court. The court could just say, don't count them. We're probably talking about, you know, a handful, 100 ballots maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and even then, they're already currently not counted, at least in practice. 
Um, so th- those are the four claims. Really, the last two are the only ones that I think kind of require more inquiry. Uh, but those two are also the ones that have the least grounds for any kind of radical, uh, you know, stopping of this law. So this is a federal lawsuit that has been filed. Um, Correct. Who's, who's hearing it, and when is it going to be heard? Do you know? So that is that is a great question. <laughs> um, I heard as of two nights ago. I heard that Judge Senior Judge Dawson had been assigned. Um, I've, I've heard some rumblings recently that uh, that it's that's actually going to Mayhem, and that's what the complaint says. The complaint says. Uh, that it's going to Senior Judge Mayhem instead. So, uh, so I do believe it's going to be Judge Mayhem. But there, there was some some early indications when it came out that it was going to be Judge Johnson. Both both of them are uh, uh, judges that are, have taken senior status in the last five six years. Hmm. Okay. Good judges. So there, so there's no reason that the Trump administration might favor one over the other. No, I mean. If you want to get down to the nitty-gritty of the politics, uh, Judge Dawson had been appointed by President Clinton, and Judge Mahan had been appointed by President Bush. But uh, but I think in a case like this, uh, you're going to get between those two judges, you're, you're going to get the same level of, of uh, expertise and, and ability to um, to understand. And they're not afraid of making tough rulings. But so, I, I do believe it is Judge Mahan. Okay, so what's the timeline on this? So. You should be seeing really soon um, a intervention or so a motion to intervene. That would be likely by the Democrats because right now the only defendant in this case is Secretary of State Zagaski, who actually didn't support AB four. Hmm. Um, so you're likely going to get an intervention by um, national Democrats uh, to, to to basically be the group that that tries to. Uh, you do the lion's share of the defense. I have not seen, uh, and maybe it's been filed, but I have not seen a motion for a preliminary injunction that was filed with the complaint. Uh, that that would have hurried things up. But you're going to see this move on a very fast. No matter what, you know, once the parties have all their counsel and it's in, you're going to see this move fast. It just has to, right? I mean, they're asking some of these things need to start in the next, you know, month or so. Right. And so, if there's going to be an injunction, it has to happen then. So it sounds like what you're saying is that that they really don't have a case to throw out the entire law. They may have a case to make a couple of tweaks. Correct. That's my view. We will see how this goes. We'll probably have you back on the show when they make a decision. Daniel Stewart is a partner at Hutchison and Stesson. He's uh, been practicing election law for a number of years, and he was the general counsel for Governor Brian Sandoval. Thank you for being with us. Oh, it was a pleasure. And stay safe. And uh, I hope everybody uh, is able to get out and vote and have a good election. Well, another episode of Impact has come and gone. Thanks to all of our guests on the show today. Uh, April Corbin from the Nevada Current, who did a lot of work on this special session. Daniel Stewart, who you just heard talking about voting rights and the election. Hugh Barron from the National Employment Law Project. And my cousin, Andy Eisen, who is a medical educator, pediatrician, and the chief academic officer of the Valley Health System. Uh, We will be back next week talking about housing a little more in depth. You can get this show and previous shows on KUNV.org. 
You can also go directly to our podcast, impact.simplecast.com, or you can download us on Google or on Apple Podcasts. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Thank you for listening to Impact.